Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and today I'm joined by Amy Fitzpatrick, the Senior Advisor for Disability at SPA. Hi, Amy. Hi, Nadia. Thanks for having me. Today, we are joining you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and the Boonarong Boon Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Um, and today we are talking about everything to do with disability pride. So this podcast is something that Amy and I are really excited about, and it was born out of a conversation that we had after we both listened to the LGBTQIA plus pride episode that came out at the end of June. And we thought, gosh, what a great opportunity to see if we can spotlight some disabled speech pathologists in celebration of Disability Pride Month. Um, and so we got really excited about it, and we've spoken to a handful of speeches who you'll, you'll hear from in just a moment. But Amy, can you tell us a little bit about why Disability Pride is celebrated in July and, and why we celebrated it all together? Yeah, sure. So it originally started being celebrated in the United States to commemorate the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act in July 1990. Um, but it's become a lot broader uh, to celebrate people with disabilities worldwide, their identities and culture and their contributions to society. And it also is a way to look at changing the way people think about and define disability and end the stigma of disability and also promote the belief that disability is a natural part of human diversity in which people living with disabilities can celebrate and take pride. And it's not um, something that's wrong or bad. It's a natural part of life and you can have a disability and have a good life and be happy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned that the states passed their legislation in July of 1990. It actually happens mm-hmm. to have been on July 26, which is when this podcast comes out, which is a happy coincidence. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, very well planned. Very well yeah. planned, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we get to some of the interviews, we just thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about some of the themes that come up and just give people a bit of context if they haven't already got that idea. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about is dynamic disability. Can you mm-hmm. tell us what that means? Yeah, sure. So I think um, because of the way that disability has been presented um, very minimally um, in society or um, on media and in TV shows, when you think about disability, you think about someone who's a wheelchair user, maybe someone who's non-speaking and you think that you might be born with it, you might be born with a genetic condition and that's um, the extent of it. But we do know that there's people who have perhaps medical conditions, people who have fluctuating energy levels, so people perhaps with chronic fatigue, people who have um, conditions like fibromyalgia or myself who has um, hypermobile joint syndrome or a degenerative form of arthritis where I can walk um, for short distances. Sometimes I use a walking cane, sometimes I use a scooter um, and that changes. So it's not a miracle when I get out of my scooter. Um, It does shock people sometimes, but um, it is different at different times depending on my function or whether I'm having a flare, which is when pain levels are higher. So I don't see a lot of people like me represented on the screen or Mm. um, in everyday life, but I know that we're out there and we make up a big proportion of people with disability. And I think it's important to consider as well when we are working with service users to consider that they might not necessarily be able to present exactly the same on every single day and that that is not necessarily a matter that they're not putting in enough effort or anything like that it's a matter of that there are other factors that are making things more difficult or potentially making things easier on certain days and that frees up more capacity to do other things that might be a priority or might just be too hard on that day. Absolutely and I think uh being part of the disability community or feeling able to be accepted into that community really is such a powerful thing. And knowing that if you have a dynamic disability, 
um, that you can be part of the disability community really is a special thing and really makes you feel um, that you can celebrate your disability. So that's something that has really been validating and special for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing I think it would be great to talk about before we get into the interviews is just about intersectionality. Can you tell us a bit about what that means as well? Yeah, sure. So intersectionality refers to personal characteristics that might overlap to form someone's identity. So you can look at it kind of like an intersection between two roads. So where traffic from both roads leads to an increase in congestion. So characteristics might be things such as gender, sex, um, sexual orientation, nationality, religion, um, and disability. So you might notice that um, people who perhaps are First Nations and have a disability might have higher support needs or might be more marginalised or uh, women with disability might have higher support needs or uh, have not as much opportunity to have a voice. And I think it's really important to recognise this and understand that we need to be mindful that you might have needs in more than one area in your life. Thank you for that, Amy. That's really great. Um, all right, so let's get into our interviews. We've got three speech pathologists that took some time to speak to us about their disability and also about what being a disabled speech pathologist means to them and also to bring some awareness to the fact that disabled speech pathologists exist and that we're a really valuable part of the workforce. So let's get into that. We are now joined by Sheridan Forster. Thanks for being here, Sheridan. Hello. Hello. It, it's, it, it, it's good to be here. And yeah, I am um, coming from the laundry land and I love that my desk gets to look out at the, at the trees, at the land, at the contemplation of, of the land over time my place in it. so yeah. yeah great yeah um could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself so i i i guess um within a within a <laughs> i used to joke you know my profession is the profession that you need to go to if you can't say it <laughs> so I I am a something that I can't say. I, I am I have been a speech pathologist for about 25 years, but also wearing different hats and and bringing in different things to my professional identity. So I worked um predominantly with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities for the last 25 years in government non-government education private sector in, in, in state uh state uh, in victoria tasmania and the uk and also being a researcher i'm a researcher I'm an ongoing learner. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very important for every speech pathologist to be an ongoing uh, learner, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, I do have a, a rather obsessive endnote library of <laughs> of articles, and I, I, I love um, engaging with research and and seeing how that can positively contribute to to my practice. Mm, fabulous. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how being a disabled speech pathologist has changed and improved client outcomes and your ability to practice as well? I, 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 I think it's worthwhile to, 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 to start that with uh, <laughs> what disabled pathologist I, I, I am yeah. I, I so uh, about 
six years ago now, I had a fall at a conference. Um, I, I, I broke both my ankles, uh, and but they didn't pick up at the time spinal damage as well. So I went into a, a, a life of chronic pain, ended up having spinal surgery, but because of the, the, the long-lasting pain and various other factors in my life, I ended up a, a, a few years later being diagnosed with... <laughs> The other thing that I can't say um, with functional neurological disorder. So I have functional neurological disorder, but I I'm probably also autistic. So and there are features of autism and crossovers that are sort of indistinguishable when it comes to sensory processing issues. Um, regulation and things like that so repeat the question for me because of my short-term memory problems that's all right um I was asking about how this has changed uh, and improved <sighs> client outcomes and, okay. and your practice as well um every experience that I have I reflect to I, I reflect how that might relate to the people that I support mm. And so my speech is changing now because I'm talking about the people that I support and that's an area that is very, uh, I don't know, it, the neural, neural pathways operate much better. So say when I came out of spinal surgery and the, the nurse said to me, would you like to get up now? Would you like to walk now? And I said, no. <laughs> because I thought the question was a question and then at nurse handover she said to the other nurse you know patient uh, 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 whatever the word is that means that I said no so the, the patient um, uh, resisted ambulation and you know that just slapped me of the way that the professional language professional ways of thinking can be so disempowering so, or so on a different plane. Yeah. So it made me think about, you know, what is it like for people who I support who who's uh, are being differently interpreted with their, their, their emotions. I knew after coming out of surgery that I could understand two or three words at a time and the rest of the sentence was lost to me. I experienced what it was, a way of having a cognitive impairment. I experienced what it was like to not understand. I experienced the frustration where I got two words and the nurse just kept on talking and was like, I'm not going to get the rest of this. This is just, just slowed. And, you know, having to say to people, slow down, for God's sake, I cannot follow you. Or write down what you're saying. I'm not going to remember it. Yeah. So experiencing for myself gave me a completely different frame of reference being asked like by an OT to you know um you know being asked what are my goals and and realizing uh, feeling differently about how the way the world the way the allied health field uses goals and sometimes it's a self-serving utility not necessarily aligning for the person. So at one stage, the OT said to me, you know, what would you like to be able to do? And I think I managed to say, I'd like to be able to leap with gay abandon into the bed. <laughs> so she wrote down to independently ambulate from bed to standing. And she, she asked me, oh, so this is a few days, this is in rehab. How do you put your underwear on? And it was like, I'm sitting there thinking about, I don't know. She said, that's okay. So you're feeling, uh, I don't know. So being, being a patient, being a client, being also a parent of a client, a, a, a neurodiverse son, has changed my frame of reference 
has changed my sensitization to different languages. It, and it's also changed the way that um, I've come to be a better listener and appreciator of the knowledge held by a patient. Like my, my problem is not going to be fixed by your wisdom. You don't need to fill up. I'm not an empty vessel. I have experiences. I've tried things. And sometimes your job is just to help me pull together the strategies that have worked or affirm the strategies that have worked, not to treat me like a dill. Mm. Um, so to appreciate the to appreciate lived experience has made yeah. me a better clinician. Yeah, and to appreciate boundaries as not boundaries, but real life. You know, uh, boundaries is the wrong word. It's um, uh, priorities. Mm. You know, my priority. You know, even though I might have this <laughs> treatment possible gap in my life, <laughs> is that my priority for changing that? Or, it, I mean, it, and it has also changed my frame of self acceptance versus a model that tries to change a yeah. person or remediate a person. I think so it's a, a it's really a massive, <laughs> which gets me in trouble a lot. You know, yeah. it's it's not good you know, in, in a lot of places to say that I have a visceral reaction to the word goals. I mean, if you were watching the video, you would have just seen me have a mm, massive tick. Yeah. Because, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, or I I can't cope with I, I on two levels I can't cope with the um, the line presumed competence because one as a literal person I have a particular understanding of the word presume and a particular understanding of the word competence mm -hmm. and I cannot literally do that <laughs> and on my own. In my own life, I know there are times when I am not competent. That mm. when I bought my car, I was not competent. So I'm going to blame my partner <laughs> for allowing that to happen. I, I, I guess I've come to reach a concept of presumed diversity. Yeah, that's wonderful. Rather than presuming everybody wants what you want or, you know, presumed diversity, presume that people are coming in with different priorities and crap on their shoulder or you know but what they're wanting at the time yeah <laughs> might be different it, yeah it's so important that that's reflected and respected in um particularly in disability intervention and being able to support people with that meeting everyone where they're at and and not trying to Literally. have an agenda yeah. 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 I think it's it's really it's solidified my focus on a lot of my work being improving the fit between a person with a disability and those people who are around them. Mm. So improving the fit that that the people around them are actually communicating in a way that's understandable and the people around them are uh, interpreting and, and responding and rather than uh, an, a focus that only looks at changing the individual with a disability. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, communication exists on different levels. It's not all about jumping up to the next hierarchy. Sometimes it's just about actually getting a beautiful fit yeah. where people are at. Yeah. Um, I was about to move us on, but I actually feel like it might be nice to talk a little <laughs> bit about um, social model of disability and um, medical model. Is that something that, that yeah, you would like to Yeah, look like yeah. I can definitely talk about that. <laughs> um, I think like a lot of people and like Tom Shakespeare himself, you know, one of the early authors, you know, inspiring big knobs. I have word finding problems as well. So there are times where I'm just going to have to say the big knob. Um, so Tom Shakespeare, the very little big knob, um, <laughs> uh, he recognises that there are certain things that are not, in, in terms of, you know, the social model of disability and thinking that it's society around that needs to make things, things more accessible. 
Um, but there are certain things that a societal change are not going to remediate. Yeah. My, my pain is still going to exist irrespective of society out there. Mm. My fatigue problems are still going to exist. And, and, yeah, things like, you know, say if I go to a conference and if I know that there is a, a room that I can lie down on the floor in for a, an hour during lunchtime, that, that improves the accessibility of the conference for me. But I know that accessibility is not a single single line. Everybody's accessibility needs are different. Um, and, and sometimes they come into conflict with each other as well. You know, my, my accessibility need might be that I can lie down during a workshop yeah. or even walk around during a workshop, whereas for another person, seeing me walking around during a workshop might actually be distracting for them. Sure. So uh, recognising that these things are far, far more complex than an easy model, of, a, a simplified model of medical versus social. And I, I, I worry that in, in a, a big move away from the medical, we've lost some of the language for describing difference in, in the effort to sort of have this normal world or new normal, to say that, you know, this person does it, you know, there are times when I, I, I experience the room that I walk in differently mm. and maybe talking about regulation and my cognitive difficulties at that time and, you know, I think you need a balance to deeply understand people, to authentically understand people, but acknowledges impairments or differences, wherever they may be. So I, I do not subscribe to either. Yeah. Yep. I think um, there's a much more of a complex, um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, smorgasbord in that, or buffet, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think that leads us quite nicely onto talking a little bit about ableism as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> so ableism, um, I have been fortunate enough to spend time this year and there's an amazing podcast. Uh, it might be called The Way We Roll, Simon, Simon something, <laughs> okay. um, uh, Simon Minty. Um, and they interviewed Fiona Kamari Campbell about her definition of, of ableism. And I think that's a really important thing is, is a lot of people say, okay, we're going to talk about ableism. And they presume that everybody means the same thing. And Fiona is very clear, you know, if you're still going to talk about ableism, um, talk about what you mean by ableism first. So for her, when she talks about ableism, she talks about uh, this idea of, people who do not fit the mold of the ideal citizen and, and also the acknowledgement that the ideal citizen doesn't actually exist mm -hmm. it's it's this made-up construct and and I think we ex, we can exercise we can be doing this ableism by saying oh you know I can't work enough hours or it takes me too long to write these reports or you know why can't I be like the ideal citizen so she talks about the ableism that's expressed, you know, by, by women, by intersectionality, by different races, um, but also with disability. And she would probably call that disableism. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's particularly about disability as opposed to the concept of the able, able body, able mind ideal. Um, so just even... I think that's one of the big things. Um, I think I'm going to go around the street and up the corner to get to what I'm saying right now. Okay. But because, because I've been working with people with disabilities for 25 years and, and, you know, the interest perked up probably, you know, 
10 years before I even started practicing. I, I believe that the people that I support deserve, uh, deserve respect, mm. um, aren't shameful, aren't an embarrassment. Difference is not embarrassing. Um, dribbling is not inherently undignified. I value the people who I work with, with their differences. So I had to come to a place, for me, there was some naturalism, naturalness about saying I will have disability pride. I am because if I don't afford it to the people that I work with, if I afford it to the people that I work with and I don't afford it to myself, then that doesn't feel right. Yeah. So, and that links back to ableism. If I don't afford myself a concept of diversity in how I work, in how I see myself, then I'm hypocritical. And it's not to say that, so that's sort of dealing with any internal ableism that I, that I need to recognise that I need to acknowledge myself, I need to acknowledge what I'm good at at the moment and what is just downright hard or what is just not possible. You know, I can't do a dinner because I can't cope with the sensory environment and the multiple conversations, and that's okay. But I can do um, a Zoom conversation, <laughs> Yeah, you know. Um, so, yeah, just wrecking my uh, dealing with any internal ableism first. I, I think this also, it does integrate with privilege in that... Um, I recognise that I am incredibly privileged. I have the financial support of my partner. So I have the flexibility with managing my difficulties to not have to work full-time or even part-time or even consistently. <laughs> if I didn't have that ability to be responsive to the changing nature of my impairments, then that would be incredibly difficult. If I was forced, well, if I was forced to nine to five, five days a week, I wouldn't last a week and I would be hospitalised. So, but then I'm, I'm also... <laughs> surprisingly articulate I can walk into an office ticking and um, having very little muscle tone because my head is sunk into my neck and my neck is sunk into my chest and my chest is sunk into my hips and 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 maybe like my experience the other day I walk in there and and my gait is all thrown because I've been sitting in an accident emergency for two and a half hours I have my headphones on and she starts shouting at me she obviously didn't read the part of the report that said I have hyperacusis that's why I'm wearing my headphones she's presuming so a lot of people make presumptions when they see you wear headphones mm -hmm. so I guess that's sort of a is that sort of an, an ableism from the outside or is it just a lack of awareness you know maybe I could have said to her actually I don't need you to yell you know and and to be able to have those conversations of of self-advocacy of diversity in a way that people don't feel belittled or um, scared mm -hmm. to even try. And, and you know, then I come out, I, I, can, I can hand over, you know, I'm not unable to talk, but I can hand over uh, a 200-word description of my symptomatology <laughs> and they'll be thinking, what the hell is this? And also to have a disability that... I know that many speech pathologists might see as difficult to what? Uh, I'm I'm not a good patient um, because I am what am I? 
Do you know, do you know what I mean? I'm, not, I'm resistant. I'm resistant to treatment, apparently, by the clinical language. Um, so I think I'm also hyper aware in speech pathology settings of judgments. I, I, I'm hyper aware of judgments. I don't have proof that judgments exist. I know that curiosity can exist in terms of, oh, you know, why do you wear your headphones and, and how does it help you and, and things like that. But um, maybe it's my disability pride that just lets me walk into an environment ticking and flicking and, and losing my legs, uh, but not be ashamed. Because yeah. it's okay, I'm different. Yeah. <laughs> I think that nicely takes us to the, the last question that I wanted to talk to you about today, um, which is what do you wish other speech pathologists knew about ableism, disability pride, anything that you've learned along the way? Humility. Mm. if I was in that position, but not in a way that goes, oh, if I was in that permission, if I was in that position, it would be devastating. I couldn't cope. Mm -hmm. I think to see and trust the human resources of others, to not see themselves as the holder of the answer, but a tool in the team. Um, yeah, to, to listen, trust, explore, be curious, but not be prescriptive mm. for everybody to fit their intervention. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. It should be about me changing myself to fit your intervention. No, it's a lot more about being flexible about what that is meaningful and mm. functional and needed mm. for that person in that time. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, marrying that with the, the constraints of evidence per se, mm. you know, evidence, research evidence is generated in particular conditions that are not not replicated in in day to day life you know even the the very commitment to be part of a research project changes the nature of the findings because you've got people who were committed yeah. <laughs> as opposed to people who were saying i just can't take that on in my life right now yeah um so just to you know understand diversity diversity as a as a as a you know diversity in, in the context of research diversity in the context of impaired diversity in the context of how you greet somebody so he did an amazing session last night with julie and um and you know just watching the way that julie was communicating the slow considered thought the the concepts of time you know diversity you know not everybody a lot of the time we think that the intervention the way a person responds to an intervention immediately is the outcome mm. but for me the way a person responds to an intervention three days after they've had the conversation you know interventions unfold they don't just <laughs> slap down and you know the, the the concept of yarn and and the concept of difference that were alluded to in last night's session just say to me presume diversity that feels like a really beautiful note to leave it on thanks so yeah. much for hanging out today thank you We are now joined by Erin Mills. Hi, Erin. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this. Um, so I'm based in Harvey Bay, the lands of the Butchula people, um, but I work and serve as Darwin, the lands of the Larrakia people. Fabulous. Thank you. Um, well, I haven't given you much of an introduction because I thought it would be nice to start out with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah. Um, so I'm a speech pathologist that's currently living in Harvey Bay, um, but working in a remote role um, servicing Darwin and nearby communities. Um, I've been a speechy for a few years now working in the NDIS um, sector and working with people with disabilities is really my um, passion. I also identify as a person um, with a disability. I've been um, a wheelchair user for nearly 10 years now um, and my, I guess, growing up with a disability and working as a disability really shapes um, who I am and how I approach my clinical practice as well. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how being a disabled speech pathologist has improved and changed client outcomes and, and also changed your ability and the things that you want to talk about in practice as well? Absolutely. I think the first area is knowing and understanding the NDIS. Um, I'm sure lots of people can relate to um, it being a bit of a minefield and really changing um, our professions as allied health professionals. Um, But I find um, as somebody who lives the NDIS, um, who is a participant of the NDIS and then works in the NDIS, having this dual perspective really helps me to understand the system to improve client outcomes and to explain the system to the families as well. I've been really lucky in that I was a participant of our old disability services before the NDIS came out. Um, I was one of the first participants in my region with the rollout um, and I've seen lots of those changes in the NDIS since it started. So I find that really practical understanding of, you know, using the right words, knowing the right people to talk to um, and seeing how much better it is than our old system really helps to um, explain that to families in a way that makes them feel seen and heard rather than somebody who has no understanding of the system other than, um, you know, reading the brochures basically a lot of the time, um, trying to explain that. The other area I find is that clients can really identify with me. I find a lot of the time I might be the first adult with a disability that some of our families have met um, or some of the adults that I work with have met as well. And I think it's really helpful for families to see that, you know, their loved one can have a normal life, um, do normal careers Mm. um, and just have the life they want um, for that person and they get to see a little bit of that in me. Um, I also find that some of the conversations we have are conversations they might not be comfortable having with someone that doesn't have a disability. Um, I like to think of disability as a cultural group on our own we have very shared experiences um, even though we don't have you know anything geographically or socially in common a lot of the time but for families to be able to talk to someone that's had the same experiences of you know discrimination um, of low expectations of barriers that we can have some really meaningful conversations Um, and this really helps us to set really meaningful goals from that clinically because we get to sort of at the heart um, of what that person's wanting to achieve. Yeah, fabulous. I think that's such an important point within all of this. And and one of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast and to talk about disability pride generally is that there is a a really strong feeling of you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And so being really clear and upfront about the fact that, you know, there are people who are disabled and speech pathologists and, you know, that's that's something that is um, an opportunity to model that for the individuals that we work with as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about ableism now. Um, mm. And one of the things that we thought would be nice is to just start out briefly about what your definition of ableism is. Yeah, I think at its heart, you know, in the most simple form, ableism is thinking that a person with a disability is inferior or different. Um, and this comes into so many different facets of daily life. So it might be Um, that people hold resentment towards disabled people for accessing services and resources. Mm -hmm. Um, This is one I've seen more and more since um, conversations about the NDIS have become more mainstream. Um, It might be um, people holding pity for disabled people and holding really low expectations about their life. Um, It might be some stereotypes that people hold, um, such as being really surprised when we see and hear about disabled people, you know, living normal lives or achieving amazing things, Um, or people just not quite knowing how to interact with a disabled person um, for a combination of, I guess, the reasons of disgust and more. Yeah. Um, 
expanding on from that, can you tell us a few things that you wish other speech pathologists knew about ableism or disability pride or, or anything really? Yeah, I think um, it's really important for other speechies to know how difficult it often is for people with disabilities to enter our profession yeah. um, and that no matter what a person's disability is, it's likely that they've experienced a lot of stigma, discrimination and barriers to getting to where they are in any profession. Um, I know for me, when the first time I talked about wanting to be um, a speech pathologist um, in a tertiary education setting, I was basically presented with a list of reasons why I couldn't be a speech pathologist. Oh, and then I'm so know, sorry. That's dreadful. And it's too often the case. It's, you yeah. know, a dialogue when I share it, people have the same experiences, which is, you know, just devastating that that's mm. still happening. Um, and I think it's important for other speeches to know that, you know, we're all still unlearning that. <laughs> we're yeah. all unlearning the years um, that we've been told that you can't and that you shouldn't be um, in health um, and that the environments around us continue to shape um, those positive and negative beliefs about disability. Um, I think it's really important too that other clinicians um, acknowledge that disability doesn't exist in isolation either, that, you know, there are disabled people in every other minority group, we're the world's largest minority group um, and we're the only group that somebody could join at any time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important to include disability and in discussions around diversity because, you know, we have disabled queer people. Um, yeah. We have disabled people of every cultural group. Um, we have disabled people everywhere um, and in every workplace and in every team. Um, so it's really important that the discussions around diversity and around inclusion always have disability as part of it um, and have disabled people as part of those conversations as well. Um, the other thing I'd really like clinicians to know is that we all have a responsibility to support people with disabilities to enter and succeed in our professions and the professions around us. Um, one of the um, biggest barriers I faced going through my studies was finding placements. And even though there were, you know, so many organisations working in the disability sector, um, very few actually had, you know, accessible parking, accessible bathrooms, staff areas um, that could accommodate a wheelchair, resources in a place um, where mobility needs could be considered um, and supported. So I think when we don't expect people with disabilities to be joining our profession, that really shows in our workplaces um, that we have to make accommodations with people with disabilities. Whereas um, when we show pride in disability as a profession, um, those that baseline of accessibility becomes the norm so that it's no longer a challenge for other disabled people with you know, all sorts of disabilities to, to join our profession and be seen. Yeah, fabulous. You've touched on a little bit about workplaces and mm. what that can look like. Maybe it would be good for us to talk a little bit about an opportunity to advocate for workplace accommodations and, and what that can look and feel like for people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised when I started working um, that we have a fantastic program called Job Access in Australia mm -hmm. um, that supports people with disabilities to access funding they need um, to make their workplaces work for them. And it was so cool to see what adjustments I could actually access um, as compared to going through my studies, you know, being in lots of different placement sites, you kind of just have to make do. Yeah. Um, and you know, in the research I've been doing with Griffith University um, around creating clinical education models to be more inclusive, that's a theme we found come up um, comes up a lot. We find that people with disabilities often feel that they have to go without the things they need in order to um, convey their competence to others that, you know, we hold this bias within ourselves that we need to appear less disabled in order to be viewed as competent by others. Um, but when I found, um, when I started working that I could access all of these things to make my life and my role easier, um, it helped me to sort of break down some of that internal stigma um, that we hold um, within ourselves and go, you know, I'm actually very good at doing this. I just need X, Y, and Z to make that happen. Um, and I think, you know, there are some baseline things that every workplace should be getting right. And then, of course, we have those more niche things that 
you know, every disability is so different. Every disabled person is going to need different things in a very basic sense. Um, I really encourage workplaces um, from the very start of the day to think about disability. You know, when you're pulling in and you're parking, do you have any accessible parking spots in your designated staff area? And I've found more times than not, there's only disabled spots where the patients park. You know, we can't access secure staff parking because why would we have disabled staff? We don't usually do that in health. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, but when we actually think about that and make a really mindful and intentional choice to have accessible environments, it's a really easy change we can make. Um, I then encourage people to think about getting through the door. You know, would a person with mobility access needs be able to get in and out of your workplace, whether that's a staff member, whether it's one of your clients, you know, whether it's a parent or a family member that's bringing their client um, to see you? Is that something that's achievable and accessible for them? Um, I then like to encourage people to think about having your basic needs met. Can you get to a bathroom? Is the bathroom accessible for someone with mobility needs? Do you have a bathroom accessible for someone that's non-gender conforming? Um, Do you have bathrooms that are accessible for someone that needs hoisting or transferring or a personal care attendant to be able to access dignity? Um, I then encourage people to look within their workplaces, you know, can you get to the lunch area, to the staff fridge? You know, is there a spot at your table where a person could join you with a disability? Um, And then look wider at social functions, you know, would a person with a disability, you know, or would someone's partner with a disability be able to come to your Christmas lunch? Um, Would they be able to attend, you know, your social events, your drinks, those sorts of things? And when we set all of those different areas up with the expectation that disabled people could be there because disabled people deserve to be there, um, we make that a lot easier for the person to feel included without feeling like they have to constantly advocate to have a place at the table. Yeah. A lot of what you're touching on there feels like it fits kind of in that social model of disability stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I found, again, when I access my workplace modifications with job access. I remember um, sitting at one of my placements, basically in tears typing because I didn't have access to voice to text technology because I was using a shared computer. Mm -hmm. Um, I have dislocated fingers. So that was very challenging. I'm going, how am I going to do this every day. And then I got my voice to text at work and you know, I can smash out 4,000 words in a couple of hours. Um, and, you know, such a small adjustment, such a simple piece of technology, which is really quite mainstream now, um, made such a difference to my clinical practice. Um, it's the same as, you know, when I'm in an accessible workplace or I go to an accessible home for a home visit, I could be very good at my job. But if I can't get through the door, if I can't get into someone's house, I can't do my job. So it's absolutely that social model of disability. Um, There's always that component of the medical model needing to know and understand the impairment level, you know, good old ICF um, to see what we need um, to meet those impairment level needs. But when we get the social model stuff right, it makes it so much easier to hone in on those niches of of people's disabilities access needs. Um, I think the take-home message for me is that when working in health or in disability, um, there should be an expectation that we are inclusive and accessible workplaces. Um, I think it's really important that different professions are representative of their service users. And when, you know, as organisations, we're accessing things like NDIS funding to provide services, I see it, you know, as a core value that we're providing accessible services. Um so that any service user can come work with us, same in a hospital education setting, um, that when we're in our profession working with so many diverse people, we need to have that diversity seen within our own profession. Yeah, brilliant. I think that's a lovely message to end on. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. We are now joined by Ashley Chapman. Thanks for being here, Ash. Thanks for having me, Nadia. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, My name's Ashley and I'm a disabled speech pathologist working and living on the lands of the Jurumbal people. 
I work as a sole practitioner at my little business called SLP by the Sea, and I provide neurodiversity affirming supports to mostly school-age kids and their families who are neurodivergent themselves. Um, so when I introduced myself, I said that I'm a disabled speech pathologist, and by that I mean that I'm on a an autistic ADHD myself. Um, I, and I also um, experienced chronic pain and IBS. Um, and due to, I guess, my lived experience of um, the way that um, my disability impacts my day-to-day -day life, I do identify as disabled um, because I guess with a lot of what we're um, learning around um, the, the way that the world and society is kind of set up, um, it's not built in a way that works for me in the best way. So I'm still, um, still learning as I go um, and finding what things work for me best and also where do I require some supports? And I'm still myself very much learning about how do I go about asking for those supports or even feeling comfortable and confident asking for supports? Yeah, I think that really explains it well, Ash, because I was going to ask you if you think that your um, diagnosis of autism or, or ADHD makes you feel disabled, but I think you touched on it already because you said that society is not set up for you in a way that makes you feel empowered to ask for what you need or even know what you need because maybe you've been masking for a, a large part of your life. But I think that, like me, you have chronic pain and you have medical conditions as well, and that's something that I find particularly disabling um, and that's easier for me to identify as disabled about. So I wonder if you had any more thoughts on that. Um, definitely also <laughs> for me as well. And I think um, when I received your um, email reply after I had mentioned a little bit about myself, um, we'd both identified some similarities. Um, but I, yeah, I really do find um, having chronic pain and having IBS to be very disabling within my day-to-day -day work life, especially because flare-ups occur at very unexpected and inconvenient times yeah. um, and I've been really lucky that I work with some really understanding families that doesn't always go smoothly um, but a lot of the time um, it's just so out of my control um, that a flare-up may occur and then we may need to reschedule or find another flexible way um, and I guess Thinking about even um, like the experience of COVID, if anything, one, um, I guess, can we really call it a good thing? But one good thing to come out of that is that we do have more of that flexibility now around if we can't have a meeting face-to-face, -face, can we try for that over Zoom? And a lot of the time, for me, I guess, I also take into consideration am I still able to do that Zoom the same day or do I need to reschedule for a different day? So I guess when it comes to, yeah, chronic pain, incredibly um, disabling because it can really get in the way um, of a, um, like the way that a day is supposed to run. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great point because having a physical disability and flare-ups, like you said, really impacted my self-esteem as a person who really loves being a speech pathologist and knowing that during the pandemic I was able to switch to working from home flexibly and like now sitting on the couch because my back sore um, knowing that that is now a way that a lot of people provide services um, or can work and that's valid has been really empowering um, and so I really like the way that you shared that because it sounds like the people you work with value you more than they value um, someone who's able-bodied and able to have an appointment at the same time every week. I really try to extend that both ways as well. So um, like I really try to take into consideration every family's own situation and their own experiences. So often if something unexpected comes up, I try to allow that 
extra bit of flexibility so that I'm not just expecting it just on my end. I'm trying to also allow that flexibility also. Um, and I guess identifying and um, letting those families know that it's completely okay if things aren't going according to plan, we can always reschedule. Because um, I think there's a lot of um, pressure that gets put on people, particularly um, being um, self-managed or plan managed within the NDIS system, feeling like they, um, you know, they have so many appointments. Like I work with a lot of families who are seeing psychologists, OT, speech, other health professionals. Um, and often it's not just one child, it's multiple children as well. Um, so I think that, yeah, that flexibility and that understanding um, really helps. Um, I think that leads us really nicely to the next question that I'd like to talk to you a bit about is what's your definition of ableism? You've done some beautiful explanations of how to be anti-ableist in, in practice just then. So it'd be nice to talk about the other side as well. If that's okay. I think when considering ableism, something that really comes up quite often um, and the best way I can think to give a, def a definition is to give a bit of an example. Mm. Um, the expectation that just because you were able to demonstrate a skill or just because you were able to do thing or like do something one particular day, when it then comes up as to why is it that you were able to do it on this particular day, but you can't do it consistently or you can't do it a week later, um, when there's that pressure to be able to maintain and constantly show improvement and there's no I guess um, understanding or allowance for um, knowing that I guess our ability to be able to be at our best really fluctuates on a day-to-day -day basis um, and I'm not sure if anyone else has gone into spoon theory, but I really find that that'd be great. Yeah, that I think has been really important. In particular, I found with a lot of families, we are actually looking at spoon theory, looking at, um, you know, for someone who is able-bodied, who is well, they may have an unlimited amount of spoons each day, but for someone who is neurodivergent and for someone who um, may be experiencing chronic pain or other co-occurring conditions, knowing that even with the autistic and ADHD and neurotypes, there is such a high prevalence of other conditions as well that we really need to take into consideration when understanding each individual person's day-to-day -day life and what um, their life looks like for them. Taking into consideration, um, like taking spoon theory into consideration is really helpful because if, say, someone only has 12, um, 12 spoons, um, and when we look at spoons, we look at emotional energy, physical energy, mental energy. If even just getting up out of bed, having breakfast, putting on clothes, being able to follow a morning routine, if that's taking up quite a number of spoons um, for... Just for example, if one child had already used up quite a lot of spoons over one particular day, um, they could get to school and only have a few spoons left. Um, so really starting to look into spoon theory and how that impacts each individual person and how varied that can be, I find has been really helpful for looking at the you know, why, why couldn't you just, why could you do this on one day, but not on another day? When we really start to break it down, it starts to allow for people to realise um, that it's not just that someone doesn't want to do it or they just, um, they don't feel like doing it. One word that I really dislike is lazy. Like, I, I don't actually believe that the word lazy exists. Okay. There's so much more to that. Um, it's really that a lot of the time people just, they can't. It's often that they're trying so hard to get the thing done, but when it actually comes to being able to actually do that, like within themselves, they could be saying, you know, I did this the other day. Why can't I do this now? But then externally, they're just unable to. 
Yeah, um, but I think, yeah, when we consider ableism, um, it really does come down to that really understanding and acknowledging and not shaming other people as well and um, seeing everyone as their own individual person. Um, I just wanted to touch on um, something around internalised ableism that I think has been really important for me, and that's around accepting your own disability and how hard that was for me um, and something that Ash touched on about laziness as well. And so for me, it took more than 20 years to get my diagnosis of my physical disabilities, um, plural. And in that time, I had just thought, oh, I'm just lazy. I'm just unwell. I tried every single um, conventional and alternative treatment. And I think the medical gaslighting, which is when generally um, middle-aged white men tell you that you are being um, anxious or you're you're not exercising enough, you're not eating well enough, you haven't tried enough turmeric, um, (laughs) makes you really believe that. And so when I did get the diagnosis of my conditions after advocating and spending thousands of dollars, um, just that closure around knowing I do know my body well enough and I do know what's right for me, but then having to then realise I am disabled, but I'm not disabled in the way that I am a wheelchair user 100% of the time and not seeing dynamic disability, which is um, where your energy levels and your function can fluctuate over the course of a day, like in spoon theory, makes it really hard to accept that. So you push yourself, um, you don't use assistive technology because you've been told you're lazy for a very long time. So I think that's been really difficult for me to come to terms with. And I think speaking to the members of the disabled community who um, have understood that and welcomed me into the community has been really useful um, in dealing with that journey and also finally being accepted onto the NDIS because that validation of you are disabled enough (laughs) to be part of us, which isn't the story for a lot of people, but just crossing that line, um, having very negative reports about my function, <laughs> um, but having that kind of dot um, crossed or uh, whatever that acronym is, um, was enough to say, okay, you've made it now. Um, your experience is valid, which is sad in a lot of ways, but knowing that you're sick enough um, <laughs> yeah. has been helpful. Um, so I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, but knowing I didn't just make it all up. Yeah. Um, I also find that um, something that I've found to be quite prevalent within my own experience, I'm not sure about others, but I feel like there are a lot of us out there, particularly within the autistic community as well, is that Part of experiencing disability in a world that is not set up for us is that, and I know for me in particular, I have been experiencing chronic autistic burnout for I do not know how long. It has been constant on and off um, over many years. Um, I do feel like that really gets in the way of day-to-day functioning also. Um, And I think that it's really important for each person to recognise if they are experiencing chronic autistic burnout or they are experiencing autistic burnout or neurodivergent burnout, it it is okay to ask for help and to get supports put in place um, after so many years of not feeling like I could ask for supports. I am only just now finally feeling comfortable enough to start asking for those supports and I just think reflecting back to if I had felt more comfortable or had felt more safe in asking those supports like so much earlier how different things could be but also that now that I am asking for supports it kind of gives me, uh, I guess, a direction for, like, this is, you know, how everything's gone up until now and this 
like this is all the potential for the ways that things could go um, now that supports are finally little bit by little bit being put in place. Practicing that like kindness and compassion and um, is such an important process in all of these sorts of things. And I think that's one of the things that from these series of interviews that's really shone through a lot is that there is so much more insight that disabled speech pathologists have whilst working in the disability space. And that that's something that really is a huge plus about being a disabled speech pathologist. Um, are there other client outcomes or um, things that have changed and improved your ability to practice that you would like to share here? I think just in particular about, um, I've found just personally when sharing about myself with clients and families, um, a lot of clients that I work with, they tend to just, it doesn't really, I guess, bother them. And um, in that I might tell them and they'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Great. Right. It really opens up for more conversation with families and particularly working with neurodivergent families, particularly if parents are also neurodivergent themselves. It's almost like it knocks down a wall. Um, and if anything, I've found that families feel a lot more at ease because they feel less judged knowing that they're working with someone who is um, also neurodivergent themselves, also disabled themselves. Um, so. I've found that it's been quite a positive experience so far, which has been really lovely. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, can you tell us some things that you wish other speech pathologists knew either about ableism or disability pride or, or anything else really? Um, disability doesn't have one particular look. Um, yep. People experience disability in so many different ways, um, whether um, they have a neurodivergent brain, um, whether they have a physical disability, whether they, um, you know, have an acquired disability um, that um, now um, brings them into being part of the neurodivergent community as well. There are so many, um, there are so many, dis like, there are so many disabled people living in this world. If I think, I'm just thinking about um, the way that, like, a, a classroom is set up, for example. Um, I find a lot of the time um, schools are only usually wanting to, not wanting, but feeling like they're able to provide um, accommodations if a student has a diagnosed disability and they tend to only single it out for just that student rather than implementing changes across the board that could really be beneficial for every single student. Um, so I think what I was trying to <laughs> kind of explain um, is that um, like I don't think that it's unrealistic to start making changes for the benefit of everybody, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more to unpack. <laughs> um, yeah. Brilliant. Um, all right. Thank you so much for your time today, Ash. It was great to hear from you. Thank you, Nadia, and thank you, Amy. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.